The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. We want to welcome you to our Sunday morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. Before we begin, I have a couple of announcements. First of all, a reminder that we're going to have a congregational meeting uh, immediately following the morning service today. That shouldn't be a very long meeting. We just want to update uh, the congregation on things that are going on and how uh, things are progressing. Second announcement is contrary to the bulletin, there will be Bible class this Thursday night. And then, and I think, oh, one more thing. We have another family night planned. Everybody showed up, had a great time with the last family night. The film this time will not be as long. But it will begin at 5.30 p.m. on the afternoon of Saturday, August the 5th, which is in uh, about two weeks. So you can get more information. Uh, You can talk to um, Mark Friedrich or anybody else involved in prep school and get information on that. Before we begin our worship time today, let's go to the Lord in prayer ask his direction this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, it's wonderful to come together as a body of believers to study your word, to reflect on your grace and your goodness in our lives, and to worship you both in song and giving as well as in the teaching and learning about you and the study of your word. Now, Father, as we worship you this morning, we pray that We might have our focus on you, put aside the distractions, the problems, the difficulties we face in our lives, that we may recognize that under your control that uh, everything is working out for your purposes and that we can relax in your protection, secure in your love, knowing that you can help us surmount and deal with every difficulty and problem we face in life. Now, Father, as we worship you this morning, we pray that everything we say and do glorifies you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Do you think about the words that we were singing this morning? That first line, which we repeated again at the end, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. That's talking about Jerusalem. And having just returned from our tour over there, just really struck me how important Jerusalem is down through history. In fact, when I go up to Connecticut later this week for a conference up there, that's what I'm teaching on is Jerusalem in history and prophecy. So in light of what is going on in the Middle East right now, we should think a little more consciously about how we sing about Jerusalem, that even though <clears throat> Israel may be in a time of apostasy and may reject uh, their Savior, no matter what may be going on, they are still God's chosen people. God still has a future plan for them, as we've been studying in our uh, study and prophecy last week and this week as, and in the coming weeks as we go through uh, passages on the rapture, but that uh, Jerusalem is still the city of God, and that won't ever change. 
Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a the longest psalm in the Old Testament and is written as a praise to the value of God's Word. We just sang about the fact that God's Word cannot be broken in that hymn. And that's a theme that is held in this and throughout this particular psalm. Psalm, uh, the, the, the beginning in verse 153, the next stanza from 153 down to 160, focuses on the fact that it is God's Word that strengthens us, revives us, and is the real source of our spiritual strength and sustenance uh, throughout our lives. Notice that in verse 154, 156, and again, in 159, we have the uh, repetition of the word revive, as the psalmist calls upon God to revive him, to strengthen him in the midst of his difficulty. Read along with me as I read the psalm. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Yahweh. Revive me according to your judgments. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yes, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your Loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Scripture teaches that it is the privilege of every believer as part of our priesthood to support the local church ministry as well as missions with our free will gifts. Giving is an expression of grace. It's not a, the amount is not mandatory. Scripture in the New Testament teaches that it is as God has prospered us. It is an expression of our gratitude to God for all that He has given to us, and as such, it is a measure of our grace orientation. As the men come forward to take up the collection, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the way you prosper us, the way you provide for us, the way you uh, take care of all of our needs, for the homes we have, the cars we drive, the air we breathe. Father, we thank you for this nation, for its prosperity, for all that you have provided for us, that we may live in freedom and that we may learn your word and grow to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, as we give these gifts, we ask that you bless these gifts and the giver. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and to him and through him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. This is not just some rote, mechanical thing, but throughout the Scriptures, there's this emphasis that if we're going to worship God, come into his presence, then there was, must be a cleansing uh, of sin in the life of the believer, not just at the positional cleansing that we have at salvation, but ongoing cleansing. And so the provision, the promise that God has given us in the New Testament is that if we simply admit or acknowledge our sins to him, then at that instant he cleanses us from all sin, forgives us, where we recover fellowship, and the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, continues to work in our life. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll pray. Let's pray. Father, it is good to be able to come to study your word, to reflect upon who you are, to have our attention focused on the fact that every issue in life ultimately comes back to who you are and what your plan for human history is. That history is not just a random collection of events, but that it is moving in a particular direction. And that the next stage in this uh, historical outworking of your plan that we are aware of is the return of our Lord for us at the event known as the rapture. This is not something that should be... Uh, focused on in some sort of unhealthy, with some unhealthy curiosity, but that it is a design to comfort us and to be a comfort to us and to motivate us to be prepared for that any moment coming of our Lord. Now, Father, as we study these things today, may our faith in your word be strengthened, our motivation be uh, greater to serve you, and that we may come to a greater appreciation of your plan and purposes in human history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we continued our study of Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation 3.10 is one of the key passages that help us to understand the relationship of the church today, that is the body of believers, those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone, those who have trusted in him, are called the church, the body of Christ. The church came into existence in 30, approximately A.D. 33, and the church ends this time period, and this group completes itself at the time our Lord returns for the church at an event known as the rapture. Revelation 3.10, while written to the church at Philadelphia, a church that existed in a certain time in history toward the end of the first century, a church that no longer exists, while this is written to that church, it is an instance, an expression of a greater promise that is articulated in different places in the New Testament, as we will see. 
And so it is a promise not only to that church, which was kept from the hour of testing, but it is a promise to every single believer in the church age. Here in Revelation 3.10, our Lord says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This period of time known as the hour of trial is known as the tribulation period or the time of judgment. That phrase out from is a phrase that has been debated among Greek scholars, and it can have the implication of this diagram on the left that being kept out from within, but its primary use is illustrated by the diagram on the right being kept out from something where you never were a part of it to begin with. So that is the idea here. It is being kept from something without ever entering into that period of time. And so the uh, clear teaching of Revelation 3.10 is that the church never even enters into this hour of testing, but they are kept from it. So that's our promise. But it doesn't tell us anything about how the church is kept from it. The other part of that verse, which we examined last time, is this phrase that's translated in the New King James, which shall come upon the whole world, which is actually a poor translation. It's a, it's a use of the Greek word mellow, which indicates contingency, the hour of trial, which is about to come. It doesn't say anything about when it will come, only that it is coming. We don't know when. And that word mellow, along with some other words in the Greek, such as the Greek word uh, ingus, uh, are indicate nearness of the coming of Christ. There's a group of about uh, three or four Greek words that indicate this contingency that Jesus Christ's coming for the church is at any moment. It is soon. He will come quickly. The Greek word there is takus, T-A-C-H-U-S. And these words combined indicate the doctrine known as the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We studied that last time. And what we see in the foundation of this doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return is that there is no prophecy that must take place before the return of Jesus Christ for the church. If there were a prophecy that had to be fulfilled before Jesus returns for the church, then we would not be looking for the blessed hope of our Lord's return, Titus 2.13, but we would be looking for that intervening event, that next event in prophecy. This is why you have a problem today with a lot of, uh, in some cases, well-meaning folks who get all concerned about the signs of the times. And every time there's violence in the Middle East, and every time Israel gets involved in a war, and every time there is a, an alliance of Arab uh, countries against Israel, people start uh, thinking that this is the prelude to the Battle of Armageddon. Most people don't even know what the Battle of Armageddon is, and they start talking about this. And for those of you who are interested in hearing and what the world has to say about these things, I think it's on CNN tomorrow night. I, I may be wrong on the on the network, but uh, one of the networks is, uh, I think it's at eight, 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock tomorrow night, they are doing this. Uh, special report on on evangelicals and the Middle East. And the the come on tagline was that here you have uh, these events, pe people, many Christians think this 
uh, indicates that the Lord's coming is about to happen. Of course, most Christians don't think in terms of the rapture. They think in terms of the second coming. And the signs of the times, according to Matthew chapter 24, are signs of his coming to the earth with the church at the end of the tribulation. There are definite signs and definite prophecies that must be fulfilled, must take place before he returns at the second coming. Once you see those, you know that you can count down uh, the events until Jesus returns. But the rapture is a, a distinct event that comes at least seven years before the uh, second coming, and it could happen at any moment. Nothing intervenes. The uh, Antichrist isn't going to show up, despite what the uh, Midnight Globe and the uh, uh, whatever the other rags are that you see at the uh, checkout stand at the at the uh, grocery store say. We won't know who the Antichrist is until we get to heaven. We're going to be raptured before the Antichrist is revealed. So if you know who the Antichrist is, then you've been left behind. That is the... <laughs> so we have to be aware of the fact that we don't know who he is, we don't know when he's going to come, and we don't know... Uh, uh, anything else, but Jesus can come at any moment. The other thing you run into is people who try to identify the rapture with one of the feasts of Israel. In fact, I talked with someone this last week who has uh, done all of these studies showing that the rapture must occur on, uh, on the day of Rosh Hashanah. Now, it could occur at any time during the day of Rosh Hashanah. That's how it gets around the imminency. Oh, well, the rest of the year I can just relax, but since Rosh Hashanah comes in September, I guess it's, it's almost August. I better start cleaning my act up because Jesus could come back in September. But if you reach uh, Rosh Hashanah and he doesn't come back, well, we just breathe a sigh of relief and wait another year, right? So this is just uh, silliness. And, and uh, But people get all caught up in all kinds of things. I remember when, when uh, I was pastoring in Irving, Texas, back in the late 80s, and there was a man who wrote a book called uh, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. Well, I guess those were 88 reasons why the Lord would not return in 1988 because he still has not come. So people get very uh, uh, concerned about these things, and so it's uh, interesting how the timing has worked out that we're on the subject, Revelation 3.10, while all of this is going on, in the Middle East, and I'm sure that there, you will see and hear many different things. So you need to be prepared to enter into dialogue with people and discuss these things with folks. In fact, that reminds me of a conversation I had with a young man who's now a pastor, just recently entered into a, a pastoral ministry. But uh, several years ago, he was teaching a, a teenage class at another church, and he went out to dinner with several people uh, from that church, and he decided to uh, get a little uh, conversation going at the dinner table. And they were they had already been talking about different doctrinal things and different uh, things in the Scripture. And he said, somehow they got into the subject of apologetics in 1 Peter 2.15, that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And, and the hope that is in us, in a very technical sense, is the blessed hope that Jesus is coming soon. So he said, how many of you can give me one scripture reference for the, uh, that shows that the rapture of the church must come before the tribulation? 
And he was just met with uh, silence and stammering and hemming and hawing. And um, so he said, just, just one passage to indicate that the rapture comes before the tribulation. Everybody here believes the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. Can get, you give me one passage that indicates that? And finally, somebody came up with 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 15 and following, but that doesn't truly show that the rapture is before the tribulation. It indicates it, it, it but they didn't know how it indicated it. They just uh, finally came up with that particular verse. But you see, in light of First uh, First Peter, it is in First Peter three fifteen. It is important for all of us as believers to be able to give an answer for that hope, that confident expectation, which is a very future oriented word that is within us. So the next two or three weeks, I want to take a study of the rapture. It's not only uh, part of our study in Revelation 3.10 as a foundation, but it also, I'm using it to set the stage because it's not long before we shift out of the seven letters to the seven churches into the future part of the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation, at the end of Revelation 3 into Revelation 4, there's no real discussion of the rapture. It's just that nobody talks about the church anymore. From Revelation 4 to Revelation 19, there is no mention of the church. Again, the word does not appear. And, of course, Revelation 4, when Jesus calls, uh, when the angel announces for John to come up here and he goes up to heaven, that is a picture of the rapture. So today what I want to do is look at this prophetic panorama and answer the question, why do we believe in the rapture? Now, this gives us the whole panorama. We're in the church age down here in the lower left, and the church age ends with the rapture of the church. And all believers, living and dead, all church age believers, are caught up to be with the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. In heaven, we'll go through the judgment seat of Christ, and it will conclude with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And on earth, there will be a seven-year period of tribulation. Now, if you notice, I have a gap here between the church age and the tribulation because we, the, the rapture doesn't begin the tribulation. The rapture ends the church age. The tribulation begins. It's called Daniel's 70th week because of a prophecy given in Daniel chapter 9. We'll study that. I'll go through that in the course of this study. But what begins that countdown is when the Antichrist signs a covenant with Israel. And that starts the, the, uh, the clock ticking, and that is when the seven, the seven year tribulation begins. We don't know how much of a gap or transition there is between the church age and the tribulation. Could be a couple of weeks, could be a couple of years. We don't know. Tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ to the earth with his bride, and then he sets up the millennial kingdom. For a thousand years, that ends with the great white throne judgment, and then he, the present heavens and earth are destroyed, and the new heavens and new earth are created. So that's just a panorama of everything that takes place during this time. So we're talking about just this one event here, the rapture of the church. So we ask the question, why do I believe in the pre-trib rapture? You're talking with your neighbor, you're talking to a co-worker, why do you believe in a pre-trib rapture? Can you explain it to them? Well, there's two questions that we have to address in this study. The first is, what is the rapture? And the second is, 
when is the rapture? With regard to the first question, I remember some years ago now, I was teaching school in Channel View, Texas, and I was living over here in Spring Branch, and I was involved because it was so uh, so far, and that was a time we had the first Arab oil embargo, and gas prices were so expensive at a dollar a gallon that we had to carpool because teachers weren't paid enough to put that much gas in our cars. So one day we were coming home, and I, this, this group of teachers, I think I was the only believer in the group. Maybe one other was, but they were just not, not believers. And one, one man was a very obvious homosexual, and it was, it was my first time to be involved with a real secular crowd like that, and that was interesting. We were coming home one day, and the car in front of us had a bumper sticker on it. It said, in the event of the rapture, this car will self-destruct. Y'all remember those bumper stickers? And so someone in the car read the bumper sticker and says, what's that? Oh, that, and somebody else said, oh, that's just some Baptist doctrine. <laughs> and I said, no, actually it's not a Baptist. I, I didn't know a lot at that time, but I knew enough to be able to at least engage a little discussion. So the rapture is not just some Baptist doctrine. The rapture, in fact, didn't, didn't even originate with Baptists. And not all Baptists, even Southern Baptists, believe in a pre-trib rapture. So we need to answer this question. What is the rapture? So here's our definition. The rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age, before the tribulation begins. I used to have in there immediately before, but it's, there's a gap there, so I had to take immediately out, because it doesn't begin the tribulation uh, right away. The resurrection of all dead church-age believers, all those who have died in the past and are in the grave, are, are reunited. They don't go through soul sleep. Their soul is in, in the presence of the Lord but it's at the rapture that they receive their resurrection body. The dead in Christ are raised first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them uh, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So that's the rapture. So let's look at some of these passages. The key passage, what I want to do first of all is look at the key terms, because that's another uh, question that you'll see is you talk to somebody who might have heard a little bit or studied a little bit and says, well, you believe in the rapture. Where do you find that word in the Bible? The Bible never talks about the word rapture. Where does that come from? That's not a biblical doctrine. Well, that is not true at all. And even if it were true, it's not important because there are many words that we use that have entered into theological vocabulary down through the centuries to explain biblical concepts. For example, the word the Trinity is not found anywhere in the Scripture. The, the word Trinity comes from the, uh, the Latin word Trinitas, which was coined by a church father by the name of Tertullian in the 3rd century in order to explain what the Bible taught about three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And but prior to that, they just didn't have the vocabulary for it. They believed it, but they didn't have the vocabulary for it. Another word would be the hypostatic union that we talk about. That word is not found anywhere in the Bible. Hypostasis is in Hebrews chapter 1, but not in exactly that sense. It comes out of a creed that was written in the uh, 
about 451 uh, A.D. 451 at the Council of Chalcedon. And it was used in some of the earlier creeds, but it gets its definition that we use for the hypostatic union of the Lord Jesus Christ, the union of his deity and humanity in one person out of the Council of, uh, out of the Chalcedonian Creed. So we use lots of words to talk about and to explain and to gain a precision about what the scripture says that don't come out of the Bible. But the rapture really isn't one of those. The key verse for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just a little note here. Sometimes people think, oh, well, this rapture stuff is fine. That's good. That's going to happen in the future. But I'm not really too concerned about what's going to happen in the future. I'm concerned about what's going to happen today and the problems I have in my marriage or finances or whatever. So let's be practical. Well, you see, this whole discussion on the rapture in First Thessalonians 4 is very practical because Paul concludes the paragraph by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a doctrine of comfort because the Thessalonian believers to whom Paul had brought the gospel and was just spent a couple of months with them in, in uh, Thessalonica were, were not expecting anyone to die. They, they expected Jesus to come so soon. They didn't expect anybody to die, and all of a sudden family members were dying, and they didn't know what that meant. And so Paul writes First Thessalonians in part to comfort them with an understanding of what the future destiny is for all living and dead believers. And in that, he uses this word, they, they shall be, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with the Lord. The Greek word there is the word harpazo. Harpazo. Harpazo means to be caught up, to seize upon something with force, and to snatch up. When the uh, New Testament was translated from Greek into Latin, the Latin word that was used was the word rapturo, as I have highlighted there in yellow. Rapturo, which is where we get our English word rapture. So, indeed, rapture is a biblical word. It's just based on a Latin word rather than a Greek word. There are other raptures that are mentioned in the Bible where this word harpazo is used. For example, in the Septuagint in Genesis chapter 5 when it talks about Enoch walking with God and being taken to be with the Lord. That is described with the same word harpazo. Elijah is caught up to be with the Lord, Second Kings chapter 2. Isaiah is caught up into the heavens into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. Philip is caught up and taken to be uh, from the, after he witnesses to the uh, Ethiopian eunuch, he's taken back to Samaria. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 describes being taken up to the uh, second, uh, to the third heaven rather. Two witnesses in Revelation 11 are taken up into heaven. And then the male child, Revelation 12, is taken up into heaven. So this idea of, well, you can't find anything like a rapture in the Bible, is uh, not actually true. You have a number of places where people are caught up or taken up 
into heaven. John 14, 1 through 3 is another passage that uh, is, it indicates a rapture. What I want to show here is these different words that are used because all the different words come together to give us a, a picture of this event. John 14, 1 through 3, we have in verse 3, if I, Jesus speaking, and he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Make sure the Internet's cut off back there. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's that word, receive. Jesus is saying he's going to come back and take us to be with him. This is the Greek word paralambano, meaning to take to or to receive to oneself. So Jesus is going to receive us to himself. He's not coming straight to the earth where we're going to be. There is this reception, this taking of us to him. And in, we'll come back and look at each of these verses later. Right now, I just want to show you that there's a host of vocabulary words that indicate a rapture. John 14, 1 through 3 uh, contains several things that are parallel to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. In John 14, Jesus is saying that many of you are troubled. In 1 Thessalonians, he addresses them because they are grieving. In John 14, 1 through 3, he says, uh, you believe in me. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he again says uh, that they are to believe this. Uh, in John 14, 1 through 3, in verse 1, he mentions both God and himself. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 13 through 18, verse 14, Paul mentions Jesus and God. I want you to notice the parallels, how closely they fit together. Most people don't ever think of John 14, 1 through 3 as a rapture passage, but it is. Uh, verse 4, John 14, our fourth parallel, John 14, verse 2, uh, Jesus says, I told you, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 15, Paul says, I say to you. John 14, verse 3, Jesus says, I will come again. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 talks of the coming of the Lord. John 14, verse 3 says, Jesus will receive you. Jesus says, I will receive you to myself. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 says we will be caught up to be with him. Uh, in John 14, verse 3, Jesus says we will be received to himself. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we meet the Lord in the air. John 14, 1 through 3 says that we go there to be where he is. We're not going to go up and meet him halfway and then come back down to the earth but to be where he is, where he is building these dwelling places, which is in heaven. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, that we may always be with the Lord. See, there are those that teach that the rapture doesn't come until the end of the tribulation, that just before the battle of Armageddon, the believers are raptured to be with the Lord, we get our resurrection bodies, and we come back to be with him. And uh, so it's sort of a yo-yo Thing We just go up and come right back down, and yet for, uh, John 14 indicates that we're taken to be with the Lord in the heavens. 
Another verse is 2 Thessalonians 2.1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So this word gathering together describes what happens at the rapture. It's the Greek word epi-sunagoge. See, that word sunagoge means assembly, a gathering together. That's where the Jews get their, got their word synagogue. So there's a gathering together, an assembly of believers in the clouds with the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Philippians 3.11. Now, this is a tremendous passage in Philippians 3.11 where Paul says, and I quote here from the New American Standard, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And the word here that's used is the word ex-anastasis, ex-anastasis, which means an exit or out-resurrection or expulsion. And it's another term for the rapture. We'll come back and look at the details of that verse a little later on. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15:51 through 53. Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery was something that had not been revealed in the Old Testament. It was new information that was being given during the uh, apostolic period. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for the believer's death. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's... Uh, some wag has suggested that that be put over every nursery and every church. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Twice that word is used. For this perishable, that is our mortal body, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on Immortality. The Greek word there is alasso, to change, to transform, to exchange. This is what happens in the rapture, is that we change this body or exchange this mortal body for a new body. I believe there's an, a transference, just as when Jesus received his resurrection body, God the Father was able to take the mortal molecules that had made up his mortal body and transformed those into his immortal body so that the tomb was empty. That's the pattern. And I think that's the pattern that uh, takes place for all of us at the time of the rapture. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek construction indicates that the blessed hope and the appearing are the same thing. They are different ways of talking about the appearance of the Lord, and this is the uh, Greek word epiphania, epiphania, which means a manifestation or an appearance that he will appear in the clouds for the church, Titus 2.13. That is our blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we read, and we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers, the Greek word ruomai, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, see, the wrath to come there is a technical phrase for the tribulation. 
just as uh, John writes in Revelation 3.10 that we are delivered from the hour of testing. This is a parallel phrase. We're delivered from the wrath to come so that believers, church-age believers, do not go through this period of wrath. It's designated the wrath of the Lamb. It's designated the wrath of God. And it is during the period of the tribulation that God's judgment is poured out upon the earth uh, upon those who have uh, re- not accepted the Messiah, even though there are many believers, I think millions will come to uh, Christ as Savior. They, because of previous rejection, will have to go through the tribulation period. The vocabulary here is the word ruomai, meaning to draw to oneself or to rescue by a forcible act. That's what the rapture is. It is a rescue of living believers so that they do not go through the rapture. It is a form of deliverance, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. Then we have 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how future-oriented that is. Present action, girding up the loins of your mind, that is being prepared mentally, learning the Word of God so that you can think biblically. Be sober. That doesn't mean uh, not to be drunk. That means to have a, an accurate assessment of, of reality. Uh, be objective. And to rest your hope. Once again, hope is a future-oriented word. Fully upon what? The grace that is to be brought to us when Jesus returns. That is another form of grace, the deliverance from the tribulation when he is revealed. And that Greek word for uh, revelation there is the Greek word apocalypsis, meaning to reveal, to unveil, uh, to disclose, or to deliver. Apocalypsis, that's the same word that is used in the title of the last book of the New Testament, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to be ready for his revelation. He's revealed at the blessed hope of at, when he returns at the rapture. Well, this obviously got too big for the text. James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's the Greek word parousia. Parousia can be a technical word for the rapture in terms of the context or it can be a general word for his coming it can even be used for the second coming but we need to make sure we include it in our list it indicates a presence a coming an arrival james 5 7 to 8 because it's talking about present church age believers that we need to be ready for his arrival it is a word there that is used to describe the rapture but it is not a technical word that is used in every passage of the rapture. So those are our key words, various Greek words that all describe what happens at this event when we are received to Jesus, when we're gathered together, it is an exit resurrection. We, uh, he, he appears in the clouds, draws us to himself, reveals his presence, and we are instantly in the twinkling of an eye taken to be with him in the clouds. Now let's look a little bit at some of these key verses that I've mentioned. We won't get through all of them this morning, but these are key passages that indicate the rapture. Of course, the most significant of which is the 1 Thessalonians passage. That'll be the last one I address. We may not get there till next time. 
John 14, 1 through 3, as I mentioned earlier, is not a passage that many people would think of as a rapture passage. But if we look at what's going on in the passage and think about it a little bit, we realize that it is a passage that talks about the rapture. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is the night before he goes to the cross. They've just celebrated the Passover meal in the upper room, and they are asking him about his coming and and his departure because he has made it clear that he's getting ready to leave. And now they're just getting all upset, and they're concerned about what's going to happen next because their expectation has, has not been correct. They haven't truly understood what he has said about the fact that he's going to die and go to the cross, and they don't understand what's happening. So he begins with comfort. Let not your heart be troubled. I think it's interesting to note how many times in the Bible these, when, when we get to what, what we would call really practical advice, don't be anxious, don't be troubled, comfort yourself, uh, be humble. When we start talking about these con- concepts, then immediately the writer gets into some what, what many Americans today would call very technical theology because it's that theology that gives us the, and that doctrine that gives us the foundation so that we're not troubled, so that we're not anxious, so that we don't become uncertain. You just think how many people over the years in most of our lives that uh, have been lived since uh, World War II under the nuclear threat, and those of you who are probably 40 and over or 50 and over maybe, uh, remember the Cold War, how many of us know what duck and cover means. And we remember those drills that we had back in the 50s in, in uh, elementary school. And if you're older, you don't remember that. I mean, if you're younger, you don't remember that. But if you're, you're older, you remember those things. And people were so fearful that there was going to be a, a, a thermonuclear war. And we remember the missile threat that took place in Cuba. Of course, here in Houston, we're fairly close to Cuba. So I remember... Uh, my parents having a big survival box in the hall closet where they had water and all ki- food and all kinds of other things, not that that would have really helped, but that was a, uh, a real concern. And uh, many people were just downright scared to death, and many people still are because they don't have any doctrine. They, they don't understand what God's plan is for the future, and so they, they're scared to death whenever there's a war. And if you watch these news reports lately and you listen to some of the politicians that are speaking, you, you hear this fear that, is, that, that uh, undergirds their whole political philosophy, and that is that there shouldn't be violence at all. We just have to stop the violence. And that's their presupposition, is that if, if violence escalates, then that is inherently bad. Why? Because it could lead to uh, thermonuclear war, and we don't want that. And, of course, as a believer, we know that that's not going to happen, that the human race isn't going to self-destruct. Uh, it's almost going to self-destruct, but it will do so under certain parameters that are described in the Bible that give us an, a, a complete understanding of what those last seven years are going to be like. And so no matter what goes on in the world around us, we can just relax because we know who's in charge and we know what's going on. This is the idea in John 14. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, the focus of 
the stability of our mental attitude is in God. Trust in him. Don't put your eyes on the circumstances like Peter did when he's out there on the, walking on the water and all of a sudden he realized that he was walking on the water. I mean, I, you can just picture the expression on his face. And he saw a wave coming. And all of a sudden he, he takes his eyes off the Lord and he focuses on the negative circumstance. And next thing you know, he's sinking. So that's the idea. Trust in God, and you can relax about the waves, the crises, whatever they are uh, in life, the economic turmoil that can come with war, the, the uh, military threat. Even if our lives are threatened and we die, we're just going to be absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. How, how, how much worse could it be, huh? Okay, my Father's house, Jesus says, are many dwelling places. Old King James had many mansions. These are where we're headed. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go... Where is he going? He's talking about that after the, after the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection, there'll be the ascension, he's going to go to heaven. For I go to prepare a place for you. Where is that place for us? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? It's in heaven. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you, that's that word we looked at earlier, paralambana, I'll receive you to myself, that where I am, where's that? That's got to be in heaven because that's where he's preparing the place for us. That where I am, there you may be also. So that is the promise that we're going to go to be with him in heaven. If, if Jesus is coming back, at the end of the of the tribulation period, then we're going to be coming with him to the earth, and we're going to be on the earth uh, after that. Now we will be have our residence in the new what is called the New Jerusalem, but we'll get into that uh, later on. Another passage that uh, uh, ties into this relates to his ascension. Jesus ascended literally, bodily, and visibly to heaven, and he's going to return the same way. This is what the uh, angels announced in Acts 1.11, as the uh, disciples are all standing around with their mouth open as Jesus shot up into heaven, the angels appeared and said, Why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. His return is not going to be uh, some spiritual unseen event. So the promise in John 14 made to the disciples who represent church-age believers were not made to mankind in general. Now, Acts 1.11 is talking about Jesus' return at the second coming. Everybody's going to see him. But the rapture, not the unbelievers aren't going to see him. He's going to be up in the clouds. So he's not going to be seen there. So Acts 1.11 is talking about a different kind of event. The rapture is going to be... Uh, unknown by many people, they're just going to know that there's a lot of folks have disappeared. That's why some people refer to it as a secret rapture. I think that's uh, a poor use of of terms. The point here is the earth is not the future hope or the destiny of the church. Heaven is. And that leads to Titus 2.13. We're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the event that every believer is to anticipate, the appearance, the epiphania 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking forward to the tribulation. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. He is the next one to come. Remember in Matthew 24, Jews are warned that they will see numerous signs, and this will indicate that the end is near, and they are to flee to the mountains. But there are no intervening signs between the present day and the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this gives us the first two key passages, John 14, 1 through 3, and Titus 2, 13. There's four more I want to cover, and we will begin with Philippians 3.11 next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that we have the comfort of your word telling us what our future destiny is as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that our future is in heaven with you. Father, we pray that that will be a real challenge to each one of us here this morning, that we need to be prepared for that coming and for our future time to rule and reign with you during the millennial kingdom. But, Father, there may also be some here who are unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their eternal life, and this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. If you are here this morning, you don't know if you're saved, you don't know what your eternal destiny is, the Scriptures are very clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The instant that you put your faith in Christ, the instant you believe that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins, that Jesus died for you, that instant, God in his omniscience knows what you're trusting in, knows what you've believed, and at that instant, he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You become righteous. God declares you just. He gives you eternal life. He, you are born again. All these things happen simultaneously, and you can never lose that new life in Christ. And you, too, will be taken to be with the Lord in heaven when he returns. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study, that we may, may have an eternal focus as we look forward and anticipate the blessed hope and appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.